good morning, Front Range. It's good to be back with you, some of you. I think I was last here about four years ago. Does anybody remember this? Raise your hand. Anybody have this on their fridge still? Did anybody used to have this on their fridge, but then you felt so much shame because you don't know any of your neighbor's names that you just threw it away? Okay. All right, so for those of you who were here last, this is, we're going to do a little quiz, pop quiz. For the rest of you in this room, we're going to start off with a test. You ready? Okay. This little block map, I'm not even holding it the right way. This little block map uh, thing that you're going to see up here, I want you to imagine that your house is in the middle, and I, if you live in an apartment, uh, if you live in a suburban home, a ranch, you have neighbors. So just imagine you walk outside your front door, think about the eight closest units to where you live. Okay, you got it? You're thinking kind of visually? So you can do this on paper, you can just do this in your head. How many of the adults in those places, how many of those names can you write down right now? So if you could just kind of calculate through it, how many names could you list off right now if you had to? Some of you are asking your spouse, that's cheating. And when I first did this, I felt bad that I couldn't list some of their names, so I wrote down like, annoying lady on one of these. <laughs> don't do that. Just leave them blank. How many of you think you can do all eight? Like if I called you up here right now, you can list off. Throw, throw your hands up. I want to see. It's pretty good. It's better than most. How many of you think you can do five or more? You can do both adult names and five or more. All right. 30% of the room. I have done this in a lot of rooms in a lot of different places. I've never been in a room where more than half of the room of Christians can, or they, they report that they can write down more than half of the names of their neighbors in the eight closest houses. I want, let's think about that just for just a second. When Jesus is asked to boil the entire text down to one thing, he says, love God with everything you have, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I would like to suggest that in order to love somebody, it's helpful to know their first name. Can we agree on that? So here's what happened to me. I was a pastor. I was up in Arvada. had a group of friends. We were all gathering around trying to figure out what's the smartest thing that we could do with all the churches in our city to make an impact for the city and to make a difference. We met with our mayor, and our mayor said, not understanding the irony of him telling us this, he's like, hey, you guys should think about starting a neighboring movement. We're learning at the city level that when people know their neighbors, it impacts crime rates, how long people live, number of calls to code enforcement. So we're sitting there in this room listening to our mayor tell us, you, like, you pastors, you guys should think about doing, like, the most basic thing that the Bible says. It would change our city. And when I heard that, it was this incredible moment of conviction because as a pastor, I had filled up my life with so many different things that I wasn't being intentional in my own neighborhood. And so my wife and I put this napkin that had a tic-tac-toe board on our fridge, and we started to go around. Actually, my wife knew most of the neighbors, um, but she's mean, and so she made me start going around and doing it. So I, I got forced to, I'm like going around having this series of mildly awkward moments with my neighbors who I'd lived around for two years. And it would go like this. So, hey, man. Uh, <laughs> And I know I've met you three times. I know I've lived next to you for two years, but I forgot your name. And there was something just really powerful about that interaction. 
I could have looked them up online. Like, I love the little bless every home like tool you guys are using. It's incredible. Praying for your neighbors is important. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But don't, don't do this. Don't go online and learn your neighbor's name and use that as a way to, like, that, by the way, that's going to freak them out. If you walk over there and go, hey, what's going on, Brian? The guy's like, I've never met you. Why do you know my, why, you're a stalker, okay? Don't do that, okay? Go and have normal, organic conversations with your neighbors. It just learning, retaining, using their names makes a massive, massive difference. That was what happened to me. I, I was just stuck. With most of my neighbors, I was just stuck in place. And I just started by having these small conversations, learning people's names. And so much of momentum is just getting started. And so as you walk out today, we're going to provide every one of you that doesn't have one of these with this tool. And our prayer, our hope is that you would put this on your fridge, that you would use it to start writing in some of these names. And then to just see what God does. If your neighbor, if you learn your neighbor's name and you can tell they don't want to be your friend, okay, I've learned this from experience. I'm, I have some unhealthy competitive stuff. I think that's like a challenge. That's not a good use of your time, okay? If you can tell your neighbors are super busy, they have no interest in you, there's this beautiful principle in Luke 10 called the, the principle of the person of peace, okay? Look for the people who are actually interested, who are open to having more than a conversation with you about their name and invest your time there. And this is the third week of this series. We've been talking about neighboring the whole time. I'm excited to be able to kind of come and cap off this series. And I'm going to share two pieces of, of scripture with you, two sections of scripture that have just had a huge impact on me. The first one is found in Acts 17. And in this, in this moment in time, Paul is brought up to this little marketplace in Athens and he's, he's actually invited to share about his religion, about the God. And he just goes into this incredible sermon in Acts 17 of who God is. And, and there's something that he says in here that I had missed for a lot of my life, even as a pastor. And, and it's basically kind of a theology of place. The, the Bible, the Old and the New Testament are just soaked with this theology of place, that places matter. They really, really matter to God. And I think in our culture, we're so transient that it's often easy to kind of skip over that. But here's what it says in Acts 17. It says, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Talking about God. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men, so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I, I love this text. It says this. It says, he determine the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. And when I let this sink in, when I got this, it was this, my eyes were just open, that there's something sacred going on right where I live. It changed the way I drive in and out of my neighborhood. I realized I don't live, I didn't live in the place where I lived because of the school district or because it finally had the right floor plan or because I couldn't afford the place that I really want to live. That's why we all think we live where we live, right? And for different random reasons. We, like, we live where we live because God has placed us there. And he's placed us there so that, and I, and I love the posture described here, so that when um, God did this so that people, that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, so that when the people who live around us reach out for God, that they'll have handles to grab onto. So, so powerful. And so 
I just want to leave this like with you today. Like you live where you live for a reason. There's something providential about the place that you live in right now. And that for me, that just opened up my eyes to what was going on all around me. I used to just think about like going and loving my neighbor at work and loving my neighbor when I go and serve at these different great ministries around the city. And what I started to realize is that what happens in my front yard counts. I met here this morning with all the people that helped put this together. And they, they, they come in here and they pray and have a devotional time together. And I am so grateful for all of you that do that. It's a big deal. The people that serve in children's or greeters and are elders of this church. That is, that's, that's real ministry. But so is what we do in our front yard. What you do in your front yard counts. And when you let this passage out of Acts sink in, um, you'll realize that as well. We're going to spend most of our time in Luke 7. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 7. If not, we'll put it up here on the screen. And we're going to look at this incredible story. There's a number of things. We could do 10 different sermons off of this story. Uh, but we're going to look at it today and kind of just scratch the surface through the filter of literal neighboring. And so we'll pick it up in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Okay, now I don't just picture this. I don't, I don't know if this was a banquet with an outdoor courtyard or if there's just so many people that this woman is just able to walk into this party. But here is this party. It's a, basically a pastor's house. It's a religious teacher invites Jesus into this banquet, into this party. And this woman comes in, uninvited. Clearly she'd either heard Jesus' message, maybe she had heard him teach before, and she's so overwhelmed with emotion, with gratitude. She's so deeply impacted by the message of Jesus that she walks into this party uninvited, and while this other thing is going on, she throws herself at his feet, and she begins to, to wet his feet with her tears. You just picture this? And then the pastor guy, the religious guy, is sitting there, judging her, making some assumptions about her. We read on that she has this alabaster jar of ointment. By the way, it says that she is a sinner. So in Bible terms, when you're reading along and it says, hey, this woman is a sinner, what's that code for? Somebody's got to yell it out. It's going to be weird to yell this out in church, but go ahead. Prostitute. Prostitute. Okay, one time somebody yelled out, hooker, like really loud. <laughs> Prostitute is the right answer. Okay, thank you. Okay. So because of her profession, this alabaster jar is probably the most expensive, a perfume is probably the most expensive thing that she owns. She's pouring out her life onto his feet. She can't anoint his head because in her mind, this is a holy person, so she's just pouring it out over his feet. And then we see Simon is sitting there. He's watching all of this unfold. But we're told that Simon doesn't really see what's going on. 
In verse 39, we read this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon just thinks, Jesus, maybe this guy isn't the real deal. He's probably not. If he was the real deal, then he would know who this woman is and that he is holy, and he would never allow this to happen. But then Jesus does something incredible. Okay, check it back out in verse 39. It says, he said to himself. So when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. Simon is thinking to himself this about Jesus, and Jesus does something incredible. He responds to Simon's thoughts. That would freak me out a little bit, especially if I was in the process of judging Jesus. So it says this, Jesus tells Simon a story, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he asked. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarii was about a day's wage. Um, Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Today, that parable would probably go like this. There were two different people. One of them had a couple of credit cards and racked up a debt of around $10,000, and they had been turned over to a collection agency who was calling over and over again and pursuing to try to get this $10,000 back. But there was this other person who had run into a series of crises and had made some bad decisions of their own, and over time, they were completely upside down on their house, their cars, 10 different credit cards, People were calling nonstop. They were living in fear that everything that they have where they live might get taken at any point in time. And the debt collection agency calls up both of them and says, your debt is completely forgiven. It's wiped clean. Who's going to be the person who's more grateful, who's more filled with emotion? Is it the little, the little debt person or is it the big debt person? And this is the question that Jesus asked Simon. And Simon's uh, response is classic. He says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. He doesn't even want to say it out loud. He kind of knows where Jesus is leading him. He knows this moment that he's sitting in. Now, up to this point in the conversation, everything's been between Jesus and Simon. But then we see that changes. We see that Jesus turns towards the woman, and looking at her, he says this very, very crucial uh, phrase. Simon, do you see this woman? Pick it up in verse 44. Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. These are all things that customarily a host would do to welcome in a guest. And Simon didn't do any of these with Jesus. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I want to go back to this in in verse 4. Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he sees her. But Jesus is pushing him farther. What Simon sees somebody who's beneath her. Simon sees a stereotype, somebody who is an outcast. He can't actually see what he's going on because of his assumptions, because he's not taking the time to actually see the big picture. 
And I think there's a lot we can learn from this one little question that Jesus asked when it comes to our engagement with the people who live closest to us. Do we really see what's going on? And, and this, for me, was a big part of my story. I, I was so busy, and Sherry talked about this a couple weeks ago with the Mary and Martha stuff. It's really easy to get busy and, and to live at a pace where you're not able to see what's actually happening, where you're not interruptible. Are we really seeing what's happening? For a long time, I didn't see what was happening. I didn't really see the people. They weren't even important enough for me to remember their names or get to know their names. And I think if I'm really honest, it's because I was scared on what was the other side, on the other side of some of those doors. Like for me, it's easier to go get involved in things out there, but my, here's what I've learned about my neighbors. They're always there. It really sucks. Like I leave, and they're there, and then I come back, and they're there. And they see me when I have like a total meltdown, and I'm an idiot to my kids. And they see me when I have a good moment as well. And I think, to be honest with you, I just knew some of these people are going to be really needy. And I was right. I mean, for me, this idea of, of taking literal neighboring serious, of asking this question, like, what if when Jesus said to love our neighbors, he meant our actual neighbors too? To me, this journey, it's been like having kids. I for those of you that have kids, um, my kids aren't easy. They're, it's actually really hard. But I don't ever want to go back. And when I started to think about my actual neighbors, I entered into this little portal, into this, this network of people. And sometimes it's hard, but I can't ever go back. I don't want to ever go back. It's been so incredible to be able to be invited into this whole little community that exists based on proximity. Not just me choosing who I want to hang out with, but based on proximity. And by the way, just a little side note here. We're living in a time in which everything is extremely polarized. And the antidote to that is being able to connect with people and stay connected to people that you totally disagree with about things. And for me, the gift of building relationships based on proximity is that when you start to hang out with people based on proximity, you're guaranteeing you're going to be hanging out with people that you would never choose to be with otherwise. And I'll tell you what, it's hard. It's hard at, at, at times, but it's also, when you, if you break through the other side, it's beautiful. It's really powerful when you can, other people can fill in some of the gaps in your own life, and, and you can do the same with them. And so this question, do I really see the people that are around me? And sometimes it's just like, I don't even want to know what's going on over there. I don't know how much work that's going to be. Sometimes it's the time piece. Sometimes it's just apathy, right? It's just apathy. It's just, I, I just don't, I, I don't want to, it's just going to be too much. Do we really see the people that, that God has placed right around us? Every day we make choices about whether or not we're going to take the time to lean in. Every day we have these encounters with people that can go one way or the other, and Jesus challenges us to lean in, to just go a little bit below the surface and see what happens. So I think that's the first thing that when I, when I read this story that I take out of there, the second thing that I think that we can learn when it comes to literal neighboring from this text is this. That there, there's a value and there's an art to receiving. Do you ever think about like this moment? Like what would you do if you're a Jesus and you're sitting at this party, this woman came in and just starts weeping, crying, and, and just making this big scene? If it was me, 
I'd just be like, this is awkward. You don't need to, like, let's, I would try to, I'd be like, listen, don't do this. You can stop. I get it. I kind of get the heart behind it. But I wouldn't, like, he lets the whole thing play out. Did he need to? No, he, let, he receives what's happening in that moment. And I'm just going to tell you, what I've learned over the last 10 years through this journey is that the art of receiving is one of the things that we as believers need to learn in order to engage the people that live around us. When I first started on this neighboring journey, I did this thing like, I'm like, all right, who can I serve? Where's the widow on my street that needs a fence fixed? These are all good things, by the way. Okay, but I want, I want to be a person that shows up and like, I've got the answers. I'm here to help. Have you ever had a friend in your life that has had a really big impact on you? I have. I've had a friend like this. They've had a really big impact on you. And then every time you ask them, like, how's it going in their world or what you can do to help, they're just, I'm good. The I'm good friend. You ever had somebody like that in your world? If you have never had somebody like that in your world, it's you. Um, okay. You, if, think about those relationships. There's a ceiling. Real relationships are reciprocal. Real relationships are two-way streets. And so we, as believers, if we're going to live this stuff out, we've got to be willing not just to show up with the answers or serve or do all that stuff, but to also receive. And this can be done in really small ways or bigger ways. But if this is like bar- going and borrowing something from a neighbor instead of making a round trip to the store that's going to take half an hour. And then also replenishing it. Okay, that, there's some exchange of dignity there. When you just something that small of saying, hey, by the way, I, I do, I need something. Is there any way I could borrow this from you and I'll, I'll replace it? There's something really cool that happens through that. Or just being curious about what's happening and, and observant about what other people are passionate about. My neighbor has this yard that looks like a golf course on a fairway. And mine's right next to it. And it doesn't look like that at all. And I remember a while back, I just looked at him, and I was like, hey, hey, you know, tell me, what's the, Rod, I'm like, hey, what's the, what's going on? What are you doing over here? Okay, what would it take to have that over here? And he just launched into like this seven-minute sermon on everything he does. So he starts in, like, he's like, okay, January. And he starts to describe like the fertilizer, and then this, and then I do the, and then I power rate. And I remember like a few minutes into this, you know, diatribe. I remember thinking to myself, this totally isn't worth it. Um, there is no way I'm ever doing any of this stuff. But I did not say that out loud. What I said was, I got to the end and I was like, fascinating. Um, it's partly true. But there just, I watched him just come alive. There, there, was, there was just this exchange of knowledge. I mean, he was coaching me up. I wasn't a good student, but he was coaching me up on what I could do to have a better lawn. And so just the idea of being curious with people, of just being observant of what brings them alive, to asking people about their stories, to being aware that a lot of the people who live around us have probably had some negative like, exchanges with the church over time. What's it look like? to like, One of the best questions, is if, especially if they know, they see your car every Sunday pull out and go to church, in the subject of your faith or Christianity or whatever it is, you know, how that inter- intersects with politics comes up, just to be able to say, like, to somebody, hey, have you ever, like, had something weird happen between you and the church or between you and Christians? Allow them to just share some of those things. Just go below the surface. This is what it looks like to live out the gospel 
to, to make it tangible in the places that we live. Maybe it's something a little bit bigger. One of, one of the things that happened to me that totally changed my relationships with my neighbors. Uh, it was a number of years ago, six or seven years ago, uh, we were having a block party. Block parties are great because you kind of just spend time around people, get to know them a little bit more. The real magic usually happens when you have somebody over into your home for a meal. But we're at a block party. This will tell you a lot about how my neighbors think about me. So there's three of them were up in the corner off to the side, and I kind of walked over there to talk to them, and they were talking about hunting. And right away, I thought to myself, I need to get out of this uh, right now. Like, I do not want to talk about hunting. And so one of them, though, is hanging out, and he's like, hey, Dave, you should go get your hunting license and then come with us. And then the other two, just like this evil laugh, they're like, ha, 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 ha. Um, and I, I laughed, too. And, uh, and then something crazy happened. That night, I just thought to myself, like, what if I did that? And so who's taking hunter safety here? Anybody? Of you in the room. Okay, so for the other 90% of the room, uh, here's what hunter safety is. You go and sit for like eight hours in the basement of, you know, a semi-existent sporting goods store or something along those lines, and you just watch videos that were made in the 1970s about like people who drink beer and then shoot their feet off. <laughs> and then at the end, you go and take a test, but if you don't know any of the answers, they just give you all the answers while you're right there. I'm like, oh, cool. And then they give you an orange card, and then you're a hunter. Um, and so I went through that whole process, and I went to my neighbor's house, the, the one, one of the ones that was laughing, and I threw down the orange card. I was like, when are we going hunting? And it was at that moment I realized he did not want to hunt with me at all. <laughs> it was like I could see it on his face. But I am trapped. So this group of guys and I, we go out to Nebraska. We're going to go turkey hunting. And... We go out there, and the first day, I mean, it's like 4 a.m., and I walk out, and I had all this, like, I went to the store, I got the, all the camo and everything, and I walk out, and I was pretty excited. Actually, I wasn't even that excited. I was just, like, there. Uh, but then I, I, I walk out, and they start to dress me. They're like, hey, that doesn't go on your head. Uh, that goes on your neck, and that's the wrong camo pattern. That's what, not, we're not going to be in that kind of uh, brush today, so go back and get the other and I'm just sitting there as a grown man being dressed by other grown men. <laughs> it felt awful. It felt, oh, it didn't feel awful. It just felt so uncomfortable. Like, I, I want to be the expert in the room, not the amateur. Then we go out and we walk out to get set up. And I'm walking on the trail because that's where you would walk, right? It's a trail. And they're yelling at me because I, they're like, walk in the grass. Get off the gravel. You're so loud. And I, again, I'm just sitting there going, I'm a grown man. You're telling me how to walk. You're dressing me. And I'm just going to tell you something. Entering into their world forever. I mean, it just accelerated like nothing else. My relationship with those guys. There's something powerful about being willing to be vulnerable, to have humility, and to receive not just to be the ones who are showing up thinking that we have the answers or we can help you, we can serve you. And, and I think our posture, when we start to think about what it looks like to engage our neighbors, our posture really, really matters. How we look and talk with them. If, if they're going and they feel like some little weird bait and switch thing is going on, they're out. You know, there's a big difference between ulterior motives and ultimate motives. Of course, my ultimate motive, I want everyone I know to come to know Jesus, to have their whole life turned upside down by them. 
But the question that we need to ask is this. If, you, if one of your neighbors never takes a step towards God, do you think Jesus' command to love your neighbor still stands? It does. And it turns out when we begin to engage our neighbors with that kind of posture, with just a genuine heart for relationship and friendship, that incredible things happen all over the place. And so my prayer for, for you and for this church I, by the way, I love this place. Like, I, don't, I hope I came here today. This, this church looks a lot different than it did last time I was here a number of years ago. It's like a real church now. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I told Jeff that, and he started laughing. He goes, yeah, we almost invited in a real preacher to have as a guest speaker today. <laughs> He's quick. He's really quick. But it's so, it's so incredible. Church planners call me all the time, and they're like, hey, I want to do the neighboring thing. I just go, go, to front, go look at Front Range. And I bet there's some of you in this room, you get up here, Ernest gets up and does the neighboring thing again. You're like, come on, man. Can't you get a new sermon? Um, (laughs) And I'm just going to tell you something. The key to being able to make something of value in a place, in a church, is by the, the courage to say the same simple thing over and over again. It's a big deal. It's easy to get there and just go, I'm going to just talk about this sermon instead of this and this and that. But to, be able to have the courage to say the same basic thing, to say, you know what? If you're going to be a part of this church, we want you to be a great neighbor. That's hard to do. There's very few churches that are doing it. And he's told me over and over again that this, this community, that you guys do this. And I sat out there after the first service and just listened to story after story of some of you that are just doing small things that are making a really, really big difference. What God has done here is unbelievable. This isn't normal, okay? I met met Ernest early on. He comes in with his SEC. What's Ernest's school? Georgia. Gosh, okay? And I just thought, oh, here we go again. Another SEC guy coming up here. He'll be done in two years, taking his Georgia hoodie back home, all mad at the church or anything. (laughs) Like, that's not what, like, this is incredible. This is amazing what God is doing here. And I know from the stories that I'm hearing that part of this is that you are living this out. And, and those of you that are living this out, keep it up. Those of you that are like on the verge of going, man, I'm an introvert. I don't want to do this. Like just allow yourself to be a little bit uncomfortable. What, what it takes to be a good neighbor is the courage to lean into mildly awkward moments. It's mildly awkward to go and admit to your neighbor who you've met multiple times. Trust me, I know that you don't know their name. Okay? It's mildly awkward to invite somebody into your home for the first time. But the payout is massive. And I just want to encourage you, keep it up. What, what you're doing here, what God is doing here, this is what the city needs. And I, I'm just really encouraged. I wanted to, to say a prayer for you and to encourage you to, to see what's going on. Be willing to see what's happening right around you. And, and be willing to practice the art of receiving. If you'll do those two things, what you're going to need a new, a new building. School, as cool as this thing is, this isn't going to work for you soon. And that's my prayer. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for Front Range. For Mike and Ernest and all the leadership here, Lord, and the volunteers, the people that come that meet here every morning to serve and to give their lives away. And God, my prayer is that this will be a place 
that deeply impacts this city by doing the small things, the simple and profound things really, really well. And so God, give us eyes to see what you're up to. Help us to see the people that we cross paths with every day and, and to really pause and to think about what is going on, what's happened in their life and what's happening now. And then God, help us be the kind of people that, that practice the art of receiving, just like Jesus modeled. Help us be the kind of people that, yes, that we're willing to serve, but we're also willing to receive. We're, we're people who our neighbors describe as vulnerable and humble and loving. That's our prayer, Lord, in your name. Amen.